All right, everyone, well, let's get started. Um, I have the pleasure to introduce Dr. Gior Netzer today, who's going to talk about uh, family experience in the ICU, which I think we all have a lot of experience dealing with, but maybe don't do such a good job taking care of. Dr. Netzer did an extensive amount of training at University of Pennsylvania, where he did an epidemiology fellowship, essentially, as well as his pulmonary critical care and residency training. Uh, he's won numerous teaching awards and has done extensive research, NIH-funded research, in uh, blood transfusions related to ARDS. And uh, this is also one of his interests, uh, specifically with uh, post-intensive care syndrome. So uh, please give a warm welcome to Dr. Gior Netzer. Okay. Great. Thanks very much. Good. So today we're going to uh, shift gears a little bit from the traditional critical care core lecture series. Uh, in an area that probably we didn't think about much, I have no conflicts of interest, uh, how, does it, how does a ARDS epidemiologist decide that he wants to start talking about something as nebulous as families in the ICU? Probably because whether we like it or not or whether we consider it or not, this is really one of the, the cruxes of what we do in the ICU. So we're going to talk a little bit about communication in the ICU, discussing and thinking about a morbidity in more, among family members, recognizing this as a syndrome, thinking why it should matter to us at all, uh, because these aren't directly our patients, uh, how we can improve things and where we are right now and what we can start doing today and tomorrow. So one thing is that the, the era of physicians running everything and doing whatever we think is right without consultation is over. Uh, I, I got this paper first as a resident uh, in medicine. Uh, this was a, in, back in the early 50s in Philadelphia. And you can see that the majority of physicians just didn't even bother telling their patients if they had cancer because they really didn't need to know. Uh, we're certainly not in that era. And when we're in the ICU, one thing we know is that most of our patients are not the ones making their actual decisions. Uh, it's a surrogate. And this is from multiple studies, a uh, Smadira study, and also in the support trial in the early 90s, we found that only a small percentage of ICU patients were actually making their own decisions. The era that we're in right now is an era of collaborative decision making. In other words, we are sitting down with our patients' families in the ICU, we are discussing care, and we are getting a, a, a consensus uh, based on best care and care that reflects the values of the patient as determined by his or her surrogates. Uh, so one thing I want to talk about is that communication is important. Communication is not enough, and shouldn't be enough just for when we think about things, but we should not throw a baby out with bathwater. It's very clear that when we don't do a good job communicating, with patients' families, we have more conflicts. That's reflected in longer in ICU and hospital stays. Uh, and also that the family members, if they don't get along or don't, don't feel the communication was good, are more likely to go home and develop post with post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms. Similarly, we know that if we do a good job communicating with families, uh, the surrogate decision makers are going to feel more confident, and we have a decreased time to redirection of care to comfort, right? Same thing the inverse of having an extended length of stay for doing a bad job communicating is we seem to have a shorter length of stay with communicating. But one problem is that that's probably not enough. And we all talk about good communication being great, but I think all of us have been in family meetings where we've done a terrific job communicating with families. We've met with them regularly, we've discussed prognosis, we've talked about things, we've elicited the family's needs, we've learned about the patient, and yet nothing goes anywhere. And we have these meetings day after day and we're exasperated. And I think one of the problems has been that we've in communication, we've consistently been thinking about the transmitter, and that's us, and talking. 
And we haven't thought about the receiver, which is the patient's families, the surrogate, in how they're actually hearing what we're saying and what they're going through. And I think the time is now for us to shift those gears and realize that this is far more complex than I think any of us had thought about at its onset. So what happens with these family meetings where families don't want to make decisions, even though we've done everything right, we've been conscientious, and we've been sympathetic, we've done everything that we're supposed to do and everything that we dreamed of doing when we were in medical school? Well, a large proportion just don't want to make decisions, right? So in France, which certainly is a more patriarchal ICU culture than we have, over half don't want to make decisions. A third in Canada say, I don't feel empowered to make those kinds of decisions. And even in the U.S., you can see there's a substantial proportion of patients' families who simply don't want to make decisions. They want to be in a passive role. Don't, don't tell me I can't make a decision. So why is that? Why are these families not listening and why are they not making decisions? And I think this is reflected in the literature up to this point in terms of intervention trials. So there are plenty of single-center studies where we say we're going to do a better job communicating. We'll do things like bringing in, you know, bringing in liaisons, either from palliative care or nursing. We're going to go ahead and, and schedule regular meetings. And all these single-center studies, it's great. It looks like it's so much better. Everybody's happier and the length of stay goes down and things are great. Unfortunately, you roll these out into multi-center randomized clinical trials, it just doesn't get borne out. And the support trial is one of these really important trials in the history of critical care in terms of our communication with families. Early 90s, we realized right, we don't really know what's going on with families at the end of life or how we're addressing our patients. In fact, what's interesting in the support trial, it was a minority. It was about a quarter of, patient, of, of ICU physicians who actually knew what the advanced directives of their patients were. Uh, and we weren't doing a good job communicating. So the first part of the support trial was simply observational. How well do we know what's going on at the end of life? The second part was, a, was an intervention trial, randomized trial, right? We're going to train everybody to listen better, talk better, communicate better, and what's the result after the end of, of several years and a couple million dollars? The result is nothing. Nothing got better. Uh, unless we think that was from an earlier bygone era and we got significantly better. Uh, this is a large study by Randy Curtis and his group at Seattle, basically multi-center trial here, terrific end-of-life researchers. Uh, multi-component, you know, multi interdisciplinary. They go ahead and, and do a full top-to-bottom QA restructuring of the way institutions communicate in the ICU, right? both at the micro level, the clinician at the bedside, nurses and physicians, and at the macro level in the way that the institutions approach things. What's the result? Same thing, no change. No change in any outcome. In fact, one of the things that's very telling is that when they went for the long-term follow-up of the patient's families, they had an incredibly low response rate. So something's happening here. The patient's families aren't, aren't improving or interacting with the improved communication. And afterwards, they just simply don't want to be, uh, simply don't want to be put back or brought back into the ICU maelstrom. So what we need to think about here is what's actually happening to these patient's families. When we sit down with patients' families, I think one of the first things to realize is just how much suffering is involved for these family members. Right? If you interview patients' families in the ICU while their loved ones are in the ICU, the majority of them are already clinically depressed. Right? They already have high degrees of anxiety. Right? Their stress levels, perceived stress levels are high. Right? And they may have PTSD already. Their loved one hasn't even left the ICU. The post-traumatic stress disorder has already begun. And when we sit across the meeting room or the family conference room or across the bed on rounds, stand across the bed on rounds, what we're seeing here 
is a human being, the surrogate, that is hurting, that is hurting in a ways that we probably don't even think about. And there's probably a number of components that go into this, and I think the future for how we're working with families is to understand those components. Um, one, we know that a large proportion of patients in the ICU are not going to be leaving the ICU, or at least not leaving the ICU alive. And for this, there's a term called anticipatory grief. It's what it sounds like. And you can see across scenarios, across other clinical settings, that anticipatory grief has profound effects. Now, the profound effects are not the ones we think of first, which is, I have anticipatory grief, my mother's dying, I'm overwhelmed by that, I'm depressed, but actually on cognition, not just emotion. And what you can see is among patients' families, if their loved one has dementia, when you give them problem-solving inventories, they have diminished problem-solving capabilities, right? When you take mothers whose children have cancer, right, who are suffering from the anticipatory grief of the, of the upcoming suffering and possible bad outcomes of their, kids, of their kids' cancers, they already also have diminished problem-solving capability, right? And what's interesting is this diminished problem-solving capabilities right, reflect depression. So they are intertwined. The more depressed they are with their anticipatory grief, the more likely they are to have problems with problem-solving, right? And this is, think about it, we're asking families to make decisions by meeting these problems head-on. In cognitive behavioral psychology, cognitive behavioral theory, there's a construct called learned helplessness. And learned helplessness is basically what it sounds. Uh, it was developed by Seligman in the early 60s. And the idea is that the classic scenario that Seligman gives is there's a father whose son has leukemia. No matter what he does, the son is not getting better. The father concludes that no matter what he does, the son is just going to get sicker and die anyway. And the solution for the father is, you know what, I'm not going to make any more decisions. I'm just going to withdraw from decision-making, at which point depression ensues. So there's a validated scale for learned helplessness. So I think Dr. Corwin is in the audience here. Um, Dr. Corwin was, was pivotal in making this study happen. Uh, and basically, what we theorized was that family members in the ICU are probably so overwhelmed um, that they're not able to make these decisions, that they're cognitively overwhelmed. They've had maladaptive reasoning. They're thinking, it doesn't matter what I do, rather than thinking, how can I work with the physicians in a collaborative decision-making model that best reflects the interests of my loved one? So that we used a validated scale. We gave it to 499 family members across ICUs at the University of Maryland, including trauma. And what we found was, you can see in the dark shaded, these were significant learned helplessness scores. So above 40 is considered significant. And if you look at the mean, the mean learned helplessness scores of these family members, they are similar to unemployed patients with multiple sclerosis, and people entering 12-step programs. You have severely cognitive maladapted family members here. Similarly, what we found is that stress levels were not surprisingly very high, and that stress levels were associated with increased magnitude of learned helplessness. So what we have here is cognitive disability. We looked for other causes of cognitive disability. Uh, you probably all heard the old adage, you know, if you miss a night's sleep, it's like being drunk. There's Megan's Law in New Jersey. So in New Jersey, if you stay up all night and then you drive a car and you cause an accident, uh, you're prosecuted as if you were inebriated. And basically the way that this, this, this correlation is made between sleep deprivation and inebriation is using something called psychomotor vigilance testing. You basically are measuring reaction time. Reaction time is a component of executive functioning. So if you miss a night's sleep, it's about the same effect on your psychomotor vigilance testing reaction time is having a blood alcohol content of about 0.08%. So we actually, so I should say Dr. Corwin uh, went ICU to ICU once again uh, and basically evaluated sleepiness in these family members. So we looked at a couple of things. So one was the functional outcomes of sleep. 
Right? So how does actually being sleep deprived change things? And if you've ever walked by a ICU waiting room, right, as most of you I'm sure have, or you've walked through the ICU and looked at loved ones, everybody's falling asleep all the time. There's always somebody on a couple of blankets laid out in whatever convenient place there is. Right? Is we wanted to know just how sleepy they are. We knew qualitatively people were sleepy, but it hadn't been quantified. So we did a functional outcome of sleep, and you can see here there were severe decrements right, in functional outcomes among family members. Overall, people were sleepy, and among the people who were sleepy, there were functional declines. Right? And what we looked at was a couple of things. So we, we measured just how sleepy were they. So we used the Epworth Sleepiness Scale, which is an ubiquitously used scale in sleep medicine. So we evaluated just how sleepy are you subjectively. And then we measured just how sleepy are you objectively in terms of your reaction time. And what you see here is over half the family members in the ICU are either excessively sleepy or so sleepy that they're cognitively blunted as if they were drunk or both. This is who we're talking to in the ICU. We're thinking that if we just do a better job communicating, that's going to solve everything. It's not going to solve those things that we just showed. Right? It's not going to be a simple fix. Similarly, we think that surrogate decision makers are ideal. Right? You must know everything about your mom and what your mom wants, or you know, your son must know what, your wishes, what his wishes are. And here was actually a large study. They found fam uh, patients, they found people in the medical system, they, f they found out who their surrogates were, they brought them in, and they gave a number of scenarios. Right? Under, this is under ideal circumstances, not in the ICU. Under ideal circumstances, about one out of three times for each one of these end-of-life wishes, surrogates were wrong. Right? Some of you may have been to long-term acute care facilities, like the one we run at Midtown. Um, these are often some of the most harrowing, difficult decisions in clinical medicine about goals of care. When you meet with the family members of these patients, Right? Most of them want to continue all interventions. That's why those patients are in the LTAC. Uh, but when you actually ask those surrogates, what do you want for yourself? Um, the overwhelming answer is, I don't want any of this. Right? So even though the surrogate is saying, yeah, I want, even though mom has been on a ventilator for 312 days and probably isn't coming off, and I know she wouldn't want it, I don't want it, uh, but keep doing it. Okay. Right? Now, it's not that the decision makers aren't com are completely unaware of what's going on. So some of what's going on they are aware of and some they're not. What they are aware of is that within families, and you've probably seen this repeatedly in family meetings, within families there are significant conflicts. Right? There's a, usually a designated decision maker, but you have other, especially siblings. Right? And something doesn't go right and then nothing moves. Right? And part of that is, is, is multifactorial. Right? It's conflict. I don't want to be the one to, to have to choose. I don't want to be the one to pull the plug on mom, right? You know, saying, well, what if I'm wrong? What if maybe there's a one in a million chance and I, I've, you know, I've denied that to my loved one, right? And then the other one is, well, if, if I decide that I'm going to redirect the care to comfort, my whole family is, is going to be angry with me. They're going to blame me because they're going to think that, that there was a chance or they think the doctors were wrong and, and I don't want to be the one to do it, right? So... What keeps fueling this? Why do we have trouble getting these prognoses to the families? And part of it is, is not unique to the ICU. Part of it is probably the way we think as human beings. Uh, there's, an entire, uh, there's an entire form of economics dedicated to this idea. Traditional economic theory is people are rational. People make choices based on utility and value. Here's the demand curve. Here's the supply curve. Here's the price. It's all really straightforward and mathematical. It turns out it's probably not that way, at least for a large number of things. 
This is a book by Daniel Kahneman. He and Elmas Tversky won the Nobel Prize for their work in behavioral economics. And it turns out that the way we think about things is affected by any number of subjective factors. And that goes into the way we decide what we're doing. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about optimism bias and framing effect. But there's also the base rate fallacy, which is people really have a hard time actually knowing what the likelihood of any given event is going to be happening. So this is a fascinating study by Doug White's group at Pitt. Right, so they actually went to the ICU, and they actually found the surrogate decision makers. And they gave them a number of scenarios and asked them, what do you think the probability of survival is based on the statement that I've given you? So if, you gave some, if they gave a statement like, he will definitely survive, you can see that 90%, the, me, the median, right, was 90%. So 90% was, was the median, and half of, of them thought that it was greater than 90%, which seemed to make sense. But what I want to direct you to is that as the likelihood of survival goes down within these statements, the divergence between the comprehension of the surrogate and the prognosis of the physician widens. And I think what's fascinating to me here is if you look at the bottom, he has a 5% chance of surviving. So the physician told the family, told the surrogate, he has a 5% chance of surviving. What do you think the chance of survival is? Take a look at that median. Right? That median is 15%. Right? So the median is 15%. That means half of the family members thought there was greater than a 15% chance of survival. Look at the top of the interquartile range. A quarter of them thought that there was greater than a 40% chance of survival. Right? And, f and at least one person thought that there was a 95% chance of survival. Right? Right? I mean, I don't know how much clearer we could be in a family meeting, and yet what's happening here is right, they're not hearing what we're saying. Why is that? The fact that it seems to be more apparent with the worst prognosis speaks to that cognitive bias of the optimism bias. Now, unless we think, well, you know what, numbers are, are tricky, people get tricked up by numbers, let's use you know, more subjective terms that really let the patients feel what we're talking about. So Doug White's group did the same study two years before, right? which is they basically showed ICU surrogates. So this wasn't theoretical people, this was ICU surrogates. They showed them two videos. And one video was the same thing, where they gave the number. He has a 10% chance of surviving, which means a 90% chance of, of dying. Right, so they gave the number both ways, both for survival and mortality. Right? And then they also gave one where it was given qualitatively. It's very unlikely he'll survive. It's very likely he's going to die. And they thought about the language very carefully because the, the addition of the word very changes people's cognition about a scenario. And same thing with unlikely. So they thought about it very carefully. And what you can see here is the understanding of prognosis right, for this 10% chance was actually pretty similar. 17% versus 16%. But then the personal estimates, right? So they asked them, what do you think the physician's estimate is if they told you your loved one is 10%, uh, loved one has a 10% chance of survival? And then they asked, what do you think, what do you think the chance of survival is? You can see it's over double, right? Over double for both groups. 22% for quantitative, 26% for qualitative. Among the groups that were given the number quantitatively, he has a 10% chance of survival. Half of them got it wrong anyway, right? And overall, half of them believe the prognosis was better than what the physician said. So simply doing that great communication and giving those numbers isn't going to be enough because it's not going to address that bias, right? People's cognition doesn't work that way.
Another issue, though, is when we're having these discussions, these aren't theoretical discussions we're having with family members of, I'd like you to consider the statistical, you know, the statistical implications of 10% or 12%. These are not dispassionate. These are with people who are under the greatest stress and the greatest terrors of their life. Your wife's dying, but I'd like to have a rational conversation with you. I think all of us have had at least one moment in our lives where we're so overwhelmed by what's going on, we're not processing, and we know that, right? I was in a white-hot rage, or I was so overwhelmed I couldn't think about things for 15 minutes and had to sit down. We know very, you know, very clearly over a wide variety of scenarios that when you're under the influence of high-intensity emotion, you're not doing proper deductive reasoning anymore. And similarly, when you're under high stress or high emotion, right, you're not making the same decisions that you would make when you're sitting in, you know, in your chair in your office dispassionately make, you know, considering the same issues. Right? And we can't reconcile those two, and we know that we can't reconcile those two things. Right? So the time has come to start thinking about the amount of stress that's under these families, and these families are actually suffering a syndrome. Right? Again, it's syndromic because we know what's happening at the bedside. We don't necessarily can characterize it fully as disease because there are a number of different pathways that are happening, and we don't fully understand those pathways. So I've come up with the name family ICU syndrome or ficus. Uh, it seems apropos. Some of you may have a ficus plant in your home. That's actually a whole genus of plants. It's the fig family. And the ficus tree is actually, the fig tree is actually an important tree in all the major religions of the world. So what goes into this? Well, you can see that there's a number of whole things that are all working towards creating this syndrome of morbidity and impaired reasoning. They're probably also working together. We're not sure the exact interplay. But what you can see is there's the maladaptive reasoning that we talked about with learned helplessness. Right? I can't make a decision. It doesn't matter what I say. My husband's dying, and I don't want to make a decision. High-intensity emotion. I'm too overwhelmed. I can't make that decision for you anymore. Sleep deprivation. I just can't think. I've gotten two hours of sleep for four nights in a row right, in the ICU. Personal conflicts, same thing. I can't decide. My brother and sister will be so angry with me. I can't pull the plug even if mom has almost no chance. Cognitive bias, there's no way the prognosis is that bad for mom. It's probably much better than the doctors say. And anticipatory grief, I can't think mom's dying. Right? So how are we going to define this? This is going to be a working task. It's not set in stone right now, and it probably won't be set in stone for a long time. It's going to take a lot of us working together uh, to better delineate it. And critical care, at the end of the day, is an interdisciplinary sport, and that's one of the reasons that we treasure it so much. It's going to take the intensivists as physicians doing it. It's going to take psychiatrists. Some of these are already well-known in the DSM manuals, anticipatory, anticipatory grief, PTSD, right, depression. All these are well understood already as entities. We'll need to work with psychiatrists to better delineate them. Psychologists, additionally, cognitive psychologists have been going over this work for a number of years. Similarly with behavioral economists, they're also very comfortable working across disciplines since these are basically interdisciplinary uh, academic pursuits. Nursing, to understand at the bedside and understand the interplay of care and communication. Social work, and I think also most importantly is medical ethics because when I'm proposing this idea of impaired cognition and impaired decision making, it's not to usurp the central role of the surrogate in advocating for their loved one and in our care of the loved one. The reason I'm doing it is to improve their ability to make these decisions. So it's going to be important to make sure that we don't 
destroy the underpinning of our collaborative decision-making model uh, with this idea. So the question is, okay, that's really good, but you know what? Can we just get back to hemodynamic monitoring? Because that's why I'm in the ICU, right? If I wanted to talk to people all day, I'd be an outpatient pediatrician, right? And, I'm, and I can tell you, that's certainly how I felt back, you know, back when my first year of fellowship, which is, okay, that's nice, right? So why does it matter? I mean, why, why do we care at all? One reason, I think, is because whether we like it or not, or whether we think we're disengaged or detached from this, we're not. And I think all of us can remember the feeling of going home after one of these family meetings where we tried really hard and we're taking wonderful care you know, of a surrogate's loved one, and, and everything's exploded in our face. Right? And, you know, we have a 98-year-old with severe dementia right, on dialysis with metastatic lung cancer. Right? And all we think is, can we make him comfortable? And the surrogate doesn't. When we go home, we're bringing it home with us. It hurts. Uh, and what we know here, looking at burnout, which is a common problem for ICU bedside clinicians, physicians, and nurses, is that the more we have conflict, the more it burns us out. Right? So we need to be able to acknowledge this because we don't want to burn out, obviously. The other reason is when we have a conflict with the surrogate or the decision-making is not being done, it hurts our patients. Right? It, it hurts our ICU. And it hurts the ICU a couple different ways, which is when we're delivering futile care, Right? Those are beds that are in use that are not available. And there's some interesting studies that have come out fairly recently. This top one out of UCLA by Hewn et al., which is when the ICU is full, right, A, there's likely a proportion of patients in that ICU that are receiving care that is likely inappropriate. And B, right, when patients get sick, they can't get to the ICU. Right? So that ED, the ED can't unload because there's patients who are receiving futile care in the ICU. So it's not acceptable to have that lapse in communication or those conflicts, those conflicts because it's hurting the ED, it's hurting our ICU. Similarly, ward patients, right, when you have a full ICU, right, we're discharging faster, it increases ICU readmissions, right? There may be more problems on the wards. There's a suggestion of possibly increased, you know, increased um, cardiac arrest on the floor, right? The patient can't get early transfer to the ICU. We're trying to manage things we probably shouldn't manage on the floor, right? And similarly, like we talked about, bad for the ED. It looks like mechanically ventilated patients, the ED, do worse when they can't get transferred in a timely manner. So this hurts us. It also hurts our patients because when our patients go home, right, one thing we know is that there are severe sequelae of critical illness that don't end the minute we transfer them from the ICU to the floor. Right? We know that there's a syndrome of ICU-acquired weakness, and we know there's a post-intensive care syndrome. So we know people are going to go home with deficits. They may be cognitive deficits, maybe physical deficits, or both. And one thing that happens with a deficit, a deficit is just that, it's a functional limitation. So I know from the six minute walk that I can't walk as far. Or I know from a hand grip that I'm not as strong. That's not the same thing as a disability. A functional limitation is what you do under measured circumstances. A disability is how it affects what you're doing at home. It's the family member that's one of the biggest determinants of whether someone is going to be able to cope at home. So I'm weak, but my, my spouse installed, right, installed grip bars in the in the bathroom, both for the toilet and the shower, and they've helped me create a better mobility environment and a stool for bathing, and I'm good now because my spouse has been, has been with me and is high functioning, or my spouse can't help me at all, I can't do those things, and now I'm going to a nursing home. So we need to remember that whether we like it or not or whether we think it's important or not, right, this, value, this impacts everything we do in the ICU, both acutely and how our patients do when we get home. Right? So the question is, we have a huge task in front of us 
where do we start and how do we actually make things better? One is to actually think about aids or different devices that are objective and reproducible. In other words, we create something that can be used by multiple groups of physicians rather than just something subjective. If I tell 100 people, do better talking, be a better listener, that's going to have widely divergent results and probably not very efficient. If I create some sort of tool, a pamphlet or, or decision-making aid, that can be used by a spectrum of clinicians, and that's going to be reproducible and ensure better outcomes. So one thing to consider first is when we think about our patients' families and we think about their framing bias, right, we think about their, their bi cognitive biases, it's not just them, it's us. So we need these decision-making aids not just to help the patients, but to help us as we present the choices to the patients. This is an interesting, uh, interesting study. It was done by Amos Tversky's group. As I mentioned, Kahneman and Tversky were the recipients of the Nobel Prize for the work in behavioral economics. So they basically, they basically went and they found a large number of patients who were sick. They found a large number of physicians. They found a large number of graduate students. They presented a, a theoretical scenario about lung cancer. You have lung cancer, so here are your options for treatment. So the first treatments were given as basically as anonymous treatments. You can get treatment A, and if you do, there'll be this chance of dying from the treatment itself, but then your survival will be this. And here's treatment B, here's your chance of mortality from the treatment, and here's your long-term survival from the treatment. Right? So they gave it objectively treatment A and B, and then they gave the treatments as surgery and radiation. Right? So you know, physician, you know, the patients hear the word radiation, like, well, I kind of wanted it more until I heard it was radiation. And we all go, yeah, well, I, you didn't understand it. We're, you're not physicians like us. Right? Well, then you give it to the physicians, guess what? The numbers are the numbers, right? So if we're all objective and we've all done our stats class in med school and we all took, we all took higher math, we know the numbers are the numbers. But yet we change our minds when we hear what the treatments are, that they're actually radiation and surgery. Right? So we have a framing bias. We're also biased when we think about information. It's biased from what we know before, and it's biased about how we feel. Here's another fascinating study. Um, Katrina Armstrong is now the chief of medicine at MGH. This was done with Peter Eubel. You might have seen Peter Eubel's book, uh, Critical Decisions. That was a lay press book on medical decision making. They basically approached a whole bunch of people who were a captive audience. So they went to the Philadelphia courthouse and found people waiting for jury duty. Right, so if, I, I'm going to use that at some point. You know, find people waiting for jury duty. And they basically asked them same, very similar scenarios. They asked them two things, which is they, I'm going to give you scenarios. Here's what happens if, you, if we screen you for colon cancer every year by exams. And here's what happens if we screen you for colon cancer and also you get surgery, which has a chance of death immediately, but also will change long-term survival. So they gave it two different ways. They gave it with, here's your chance of dying, right? And that's on the, on the left. And here's your chance of surviving. Right? The other way, sorry. Here's your chance of surviving and here's your chance of dying, right? So for us, right, for most people, we think, well, it, you know, they're the same. They're the flip sides of the coin. And yet, if you look at the actual numbers themselves, you can see that proportions are different, right? Which is here, right, is people answering correctly. People understand survival curves better than they understand mortality curves, although they don't seem to understand either one that well, right? So the way we present the data changes the way people perceive it. And similarly, right, if we show people chances of survival, right, versus mortality, right, you can see it changes their decision-making further, right? right? People don't think the same way whether you show them survival or mortality. So thing, the way we present data 
changes things. It's not just the patient's families that need decision-making aids, it's us. Right? So we have one, a couple of issues. So the, one is decision-making aids. The other one is actually just thinking about how we present choices. Right? And I think one thing is we all think choice is wonderful, and yet when we're, at, when we're actually living our lives, we realize there are certain limitations. So if I ask people to raise hands, and they may or may not, if I ask people, have you shopped at Trader Joe's and do you like it? Right? Most people who've had access to Trader Joe's raises their hand, right? I've never met someone who hates Trader Joe's. Right? Everyone loves Trader Joe's. So why do you love Trader Joe's? Well, there's probably two reasons to like it. First is people like the quality of the product. But the second is shopping there is a pleasure because you don't have 52 choices of black beans, right? You get black beans, right? It's pretty streamlined going through there. So what happens is you can actually, one can be overwhelmed by the number of choices. So the way we show things changes. And one of the classic constructs in retail is, right, you're more likely to get someone to choose and buy if you show them three choices rather than nine choices. And similarly, when we, the way we present our advanced directives right, has the same impact. We've all seen bizarre end-of-life choices right, for ACLS. Well, they'll have the chemical cardio version, but they will pass on defibrillation. Um, they can have compressions and epinephrine, uh, but no intubation. So when you see that kind of code status, the first thing I think of is way too many choices presented in a confusing way. So there's a couple of things we can do to help the way people choose their advanced directives. So the first is an interesting study by Amber Bernardo. Uh, and what they did was they did this by video conferencing. They showed surrogates different scenarios of clinicians talking about advanced directives. So when the clinicians, A, showed emotion, this is important to me, I'm talking about your mom and it's important, and B, presented comfort care as a default, as you know, in this situation, we find that comfort is the desired, right, is the desired path for most of our patients. Patients' families were more likely to choose, right, were more likely to choose comfort. This another interesting study by Scott Halpern, uh, done at Penn, they took patients who were sick who were being seen in outpatient clinics, and they gave them advanced directives multiple ways. So in one, they had the multiple check boxes, and the, all the check boxes were blank. In the other, they had multiple checkboxes, and all the checkboxes were already pre-checked for aggressive. And another group got checkboxes, and they were already pre-checked for comfort. Guess which group was the most likely to choose comfort care? It's a, it's a tough crowd today, but you're correct for the few people that mumbled. Uh, the people who got preset or pre-checked comfort were more likely to go with the default choice of comfort care. So the way we're presenting our advanced directives change things. So this brings us back to decision aids, because if we're consistent in presenting data, we may improve the ability to have consistent logical decisions being made. Uh, Doug White's group here at Pitt, uh, they looked at just that. They did a pilot study. The first part was meeting with family members and thinking what would go in the decision-making aid, and then going ahead and creating a decision-making aid that was multidisciplinary, had visual depictions of probabilities, uh, it had cues, it had different things to create a standardized script for physicians to talk to the patients, families, about what to do. And what was important was making sure they provided medical information, elicited preferences, uh, made sure that there was aids in decision making and guided those decisions. And what you can see here was that doing that, and again, small study, single center, right, not quite ready for prime time, but in a very promising, very promising turn, the results here across the board were that things were improved. There was less, there was less conflict, better communication, better comprehension, right? uh, and more concordance. These were all things that were good here. 
Similarly, uh, there are a number of things we talked a little bit about earlier about anticipatory grief and, and deficits and problem solving. You can actually work on problem solving and get people to think and retrain them cognitively in difficult environments. This can be done by the web. It can be also done in person. It can also be done with written aids. Uh, that's something that's worked well across a number of clinical scenarios, right? Hospice caregivers, uh, uh, parents of families with brain injury, uh, and people with severe disability and their caregivers, uh, that seems to work. Now, how well we can do that in the ICU remains to be seen. It may be very difficult to go through formal training uh, when, you're, when people's loved ones are in the bed next to them. Uh, but certainly, especially with web-based modalities, this is something very promising for us to be thinking about. So what can we do right now at the bedside? Like we talked about, uh, this, is a, this is an issue. This isn't going anywhere. Uh, the family ICU syndrome is real, and whether we acknowledge it or not, it impacts both how we run our ICU, the patients in the ED, the patients on the wards, and how our patients do when they get home. So what can we do? Well, first is to actually start thinking and listening to the patients themselves, or the families of the patients themselves, I should say. And so this is an interesting study that looked at what was important to family members and then look at what actually correlated with what was important to family members and what actually made a difference. And they used the quality of dying scale, QOD scale, uh, which was also developed by Randy Curtis. And what they found was there were three things that seemed to be tightly correlated with the quality of dying scale that were found to be unsatisfactory. They were support of the family as decision makers, the family control over the patient's care, and the ICU atmosphere. So what can we do about those things? I was surfing the web, uh, probably in lieu of serious academic pursuit, but got interested in what was actually out there on visiting hours with the Google. And so what was interesting is this came up. This is a, a blog from someone's family. Uh, their dad went for cardiac surgery, and they wrote, we took a picture of the visiting hours so we could remember uh, what they were. Here they are. Right? And, and take a look at these visiting hours. Right? Is this, I mean, who would like to see their, their loved one who's on a ventilator or sick Right, multi-organ failure for half an hour at a time demarcated over five, six visits through a day. Right? Similarly, that's not a unique scenario. In fact, if you look across most of the country, Baltimore included, that's actually the norm. That's not the exception. Right? And so despite the fact that all the major uh, organizations for, for healthcare outcomes and for nursing have all said, you need to liberalize visiting hours in the ICU, the majority of ICUs don't have liberalized visitation policies. Most have limitations in time, most have limitations in number of visitors, and most have limitation in age of visitors. And there really doesn't seem to be much, you know, you can see here, here are the no restriction, right, as demarcated by the triangles. What you can see here is that it seems like they're scattered across all sizes of hospitals and all sizes of ICUs, that we limit, right, how we let families visit their loved ones in the ICU. Right? Why do we limit it? Well, we've got all kinds of reasons for it. It's not good for the patients. They're, they're too tired. They're, they're exhausted. They're multi-organ failure. They're too sick also. You know what? They're going to get all catacold up if their loved one is with them. That's not going to be good. I don't want that happening to my patient. Right? You know, it's going to get in the way of the nursing. Bedside care has got to come first. I can't have a family member messing with nursing. You know what? And also, it's not going to be good for the family member. They need to be at home sleeping, not at the bedside. Right? So I think if we're going to think that way, we should probably contextualize it historically. Right? And there was certainly another group of doctors and nurses who thought that way for a long time. And you can see here the visiting hours for pediatrics, right? Boston Children's Hospital, mom's got to go once a week for three hours. Uh, dad's actually got an extra hour. That was kind of nice. Uh, and if you cried too much at the general, well, you've got to put that kid in isolation because that crying is going to bother other patients, 
Right? And even at Hopkins after the Second World War, right, I think two hours a week is plenty for parents to see their children. Right? Now, most of us probably think that's absurd, but the rationale, right, and this is a physician talking about those days, is it was convenient we considered parent, parents to be in the way. I think you can fill in that blank for the adult ICU today. Right? And I think the time here is if, that we should really start thinking about this lesson from pediatrics. There's a lot we can think about there. This was an interesting editorial from a medical student that was in JAMA a couple weeks ago who basically said, why is it in pediatrics we're thinking about how we treat the families and what the family comfort is and the family participation and care is, and in adult medicine we don't even think about it. And for me it's the same thing here. I think it's important because it is important to alleviate suffering and to take better care of all human beings. But at the end of the day, what's going to drive things is it's good for our patients, and there's a bottom line. And one thing we know is that by using the family with us and making a true collaborative team, we're going to improve the quality of care, we're going to reduce the ICU length of stay, and we're going to improve care for everyone. And that's exactly what this editorial calls for. So what can we do? Well, the first is let's create a supportive environment. Right? So meeting rooms are good. I think RICUs all have meeting rooms. That's a good thing. Right? Um, open visitation policies. Right? This idea that somehow you know, there's times the families can be there and times that aren't is, is the same thing with pediatrics. We, we firmly believe that in pediatrics a while ago. You can't tell me that a mother loves her child any less when the child is 25 than when the child is 2. It makes no sense to separate them. Similarly, it makes no sense to separate spouses, siblings, children. It just doesn't. Right? And so you know, that's an issue that we need to be talking about. The other thing is we need to acknowledge that the families are in the, in the ICU <coughs> and to create support. Right? So one is that modern, a lot of the newer ICUs actually have dedicated space, actually either uh, separate uh, annexes or actually separate rooms for the families. Uh, we need to think about where the family members can actually sleep. Right? I think for a lot of us who were uh, in the hospital with partners or spouses after children, we knew there was a fold-out, there was a fold-out chair. We could sleep in the room. Uh, I'm a little unclear why for the, my spouse giving birth, I can use a fold-out bed, but I can't do that if my loved one's in the ICU. Right, that's, that's a discrepancy that makes no sense. Uh, we need to be thinking about how these families are going to actually eat. Is there some way they can get food if their loved one is critically ill or especially close to dying where they don't have to leave? And for a lot of us, we're a tertiary care ICU. Um, these family members may have extended stays. How are they actually going to do things like bathe and do laundry? Right? But the biggest issue for me is I want to relieve the suffering of these human beings, but ultimately I want to take better care of my patients. Right? That's, why, that's why I'm in critical care. That's why I'm interested in epidemiology, which is how can I actually take better care of the patients? And so one thing is it's a win-win. So this is a, a theory, mid-level nursing theory by Judy, uh, uh, sorry, by Judy Davidson uh, called facilitated sense-making. And the idea basically is if you include the family member in bedside care, right, he or she is going to be able to adapt better to what's going on. It creates a new normal. Okay, I know, I know my spouse is on a ventilator, my partner's on a ventilator, uh, but if, you know, by being able to massage his or her hands, uh, that makes me feel better and, and I can deal and I can figure out what's going on. So there's a lot of things that family members can do at the bedside. Um, what does that mean? Well, it's good for the family members, but it's also good for the patients. So you know, we did a study here with, with um, Matt Barrett, who's one of our fellows, where we found that one of the biggest impediments to early mobilization was staffing. Uh, this is the experience at the University of Michigan, SICU, by Ruck Steel. 
they basically said, you know what? It's hard for us to do early mobilization. We had a, we had a uh, protocol. We had a big movement. It kind of petered out. Uh, it's tough for the nurses. It's tough all the way around. Um, let's just bring the families in to help us. Guess what? Boom. More mobilization. Right? Similarly, right, having the family members involved in the ICU may reduce delirium. What's old is what's new. This is actually a pretty, pretty long ago study, but it looks like having the family in there uh, seems to improve things. We know from Sharon Inway's study uh, in the HELP trial that in hospitalized older patients, having their loved ones there at the bedside does reduce delirium as well. Right? It should be noted also, by the way, that in cardiac ICUs, that visitation, that open and liberal visitation actually reduces cardiac events. Uh, that's out of the Italian experience. And we need to start thinking about what pediatrics has taught us a while back, which is we need to round with families. Uh, that was something I started doing a couple of years ago. Uh, that is now becoming a part of the ICU culture. Uh, we can come late to the party or we can come early to the party, but it's coming. Um, the pe pediatrics, pediatricians have been doing this for a long, long time. And what we know is it does a lot of things. So first of all, it's good for the, it's good for the family members, right? They, they feel more satisfied. They have better control. They feel better communicated with. It's good for the nurses. Right? It increases nursing engagement with the rounds. It does not... Right? It does not affect medical education. Right? There are multiple studies because one of the first questions is, well, I can't have the resident and the intern and the medical students presenting in front of the families because, A, they'll, it'll mess them up, and B, they won't be able to say what they really want to say. It doesn't affect medical education. Right? And it's already part of the guidelines. The SCCM guidelines endorsed this a long time ago. And I can tell you as a member of the Family-Centered Care Guidelines, I'm almost certain this is going to be part of the new guidelines as well. <coughs> Excuse me. Finally, right, these problems that the family members have don't end with the ICU discharge. Uh, they keep going. There's a post-intensive care syndrome family. And like we talked about earlier, you have an impaired family member at home after discharge. It's going to be bad for your patient because that's going to reduce their social integration and possibly also reduce their quality of life afterwards. Right? So one thing that we need to start doing, not only for family members, but for our patients and for ourselves right, and our own sanity and our own burnout, is to start thinking about a family ICU syndrome. It's very real. We can do the best job we can. Uh, it doesn't mean that it's going to ameliorate the entire complexity of the syndrome. So we need to realize that there are significant cognitive barriers. Good communication is important, but it will not solve all these cognitive barriers. Uh, we need to think about this while we're meeting with families uh, to better understand what's going on with the communication, also when we go home, to live with things. Uh, we need to think about standardized interventions, questionnaires, pamphlets, decision-making aids. Uh, and we can start right now by thinking about the patient's families not as a sort of opponent, uh, but as a partner in care. Because when we collaborate actively with them, right, we get to where we're going to go anyway, uh, and we may potentially dramatically improve outcomes. So I want to thank all of you for being here today. A uh, terrific group that I've been working with here at Maryland. Also, been lucky to have some wonderful collaborators across institutional lines, and I think we have time for questions. So I thank you. Yes, yeah, so that's a great question. So the question is, what are the actual data for timing of family meetings? And that's, and I think that's squirrely and that's difficult because a lot of the numbers are actually very qualitative. So frequent. Right? Frequent seems to be associated with better outcomes. In terms of actual randomized clinical trial data, as I showed you, uh, the single center studies in which they did daily 
uh, family meetings seemed to be better. Uh, the randomized, the multi-center trials uh, didn't seem to improve things. So I think we should be talking about daily. What's interesting is from some uh, data that are embargo, uh, it does look like more informal meetings may also be associated with greater satisfaction. And one other question? I think, I think that's a great, uh, so first, thank you for the kind words, and second, uh, a great question and a great point about family-centered family rounds, which is, like everything we do in medicine, there's a, a, probably a good way to do it and a bad way to do it. And certainly, a badly conducted family-centered rounds is going to be a debacle. Uh, and I think there is a, a key to doing it. I think most of us have scripts uh, of some type. There's a, a small amount of literature on cues and things we say. I can tell you the correspondence I've had with Taylor Thompson at the general. Um, most of us do something pretty similar, which is we introduce ourselves to the families. I think it's an important thing. We actually don't introduce ourselves formally enough. Introduce ourselves formally. I'll say, I'm, I'm Dr. Netzer. I'm Gior Netzer. I'm the attending on the ICU team. We're going to be talking about your loved one today. We welcome you to join us on rounds. And then you need to say something to the extent of, we're going to be talking about all the numbers and all the figures. If you have questions, please hold on to them. Um, we'll try to answer them as best we can, although we may need to meet with you again later. And talking with you now is not in lieu of, or instead of meeting later in the day as well. So basically the components are, let the families know what we're doing. Let them know it's going to be highly technical. Let them know that we will be addressing questions, that you may not be able to answer every single question. And let them know that them being on rounds uh, isn't instead of having other substantive meetings. I can tell you that the, I think the data are all across the board very positive. Uh, anecdotally, and I, and I shudder with the moment that I've begun to cite anecdote, uh, at least for me at bedside rounds, is that extra three minutes with the family on rounds has, has basically obviated an enormous number of, of multi-hour afternoon meetings. Uh, with the families on rounds, they are empowered, they know what's going on, they know there aren't secrets, there's, there's improved trust, and it makes the, the big family meetings much more straightforward, much quicker. Those kind of two-hour drag out terrible afternoon meetings are, are really largely a thing of the past with the families participating on rounds. Dr. Reed. Yeah, I think that's a great question, which is how, how are different economic models, including the Affordable Care Act, going to change our approach to family-centered care? And I think, again, this is all going to come at the end of the day, right, whether we, whether we think humanistically and subjectively and qualitatively or simply at the hard facts, at the end of the day, it's the hard facts. And for me, it's I want ICU beds open. I don't want delays from the ED. I don't want delays from the floor. I want to reduce length of stay. Right? And those are all things that I'm going to get by working better with families. And so I think more and more it's the numbers that are going to drive that. Uh, it takes very little additional time to do these things. Uh, and the, the payout you know, on the back end is very large. Right. Thanks very much.